Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Beyond 50 Radio program. I'm Daniel Davis. Joining us on the Beyond 50 Radio program today is author of the book, Narctionary. It's the Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Dictionary. Our guest, Tracy Campbell, is known as a self-love recovery coach. We're going to find out about her groundbreaking dictionary that helps abused women recover from narcissistic abuse. For years, our guests had been collecting terms, names, and definitions on narcissism from A through Z. Some examples under the letter A, for example... Abuse amnesia, abuse by a proxy, altruistic narcissist, anticipated losses, and arguing in bad faith. I'd like to welcome to the Beyond 50 radio program today, our guest and author of the book, Narctionary, Dr. Tracy Kemble. Dr. Kemble, thank you for joining us here on the Beyond 50 radio program. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you got quite a story, but first of all, how does one know that they're in a narcissistic relationship? What does that look like? It looks like a relationship where there's continuous drama, that the rules are always changing, that you're in a state of a fog. You find yourself probably crying more than laughing and enjoying yourself. And it's somebody that you feel is that you have to live um, in like this hyper sense of alertness because you never really know who's walking through the door. Huh. Now, how did this occur for you? What happened there when it all started good but then seemed to go bad, and how did you know when that was? Because yours was for about five years, as I understand it. Well, to be honest with you, you know, I get asked that a lot. People say, how did you end up in, you know, how did you end up writing this book? How did you end up in the world of uh, of recovery? Because I've been in the world of of empowerment and recovery for about 30 years. And uh, I, I think I, the easiest way to say how I got to the, the most painful points of my life was that I was raised in a family unit that had narcissism. And so to me, the, the personality of a narcissist, the behaviors of a narcissist were very normalized. So I thought this is just how people behaved in life. I never liked it. I never, I never um, felt good within the dynamics of it. But I honestly thought because I thought since my childhood that, oh, this is just how people behave and you need to learn to survive it. So, so as I progressed in life, because that was my, my base, like the comparison I'm getting right now is sometimes if we eat, eat salt, um, we lose the, the ability to, te- to taste the intensity of it. <clears throat> so we end up putting more and more and more and more salt on our food to be able to get to be able to get that 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 flavor. Well, it was the same thing in my relationship. Is that I already had my baseline was uh, this underlying narcissistic personality. So for me, it had to reach great extremes of pain in order for me to realize that something was really really wrong. And uh, I did that through uh, a marriage and. 
um, a subsequent divorce of my first round of recovery, and then really stepping into the world of narcissism uh, was the second part of my journey and taking the past 20 years of my life and specializing in this very unique form of abuse. Now, is it physical, mental, a little bit of each, all of it? No, I think that narcissistic abuse, it, of course, it can escalate to to physical trauma, but it, the majority of narcissistic abuse is just a mind manipulation. Right. Yeah, that would make quite a bit of sense. Now, do you feel that sometimes when people find themselves in those relationships, they start off feeling in denial like, well, no, I'm a little too smart for this or whatever the case may be, but then eventually they find themselves in it and think, well, how did I get into this mess in the first place? How does that usually that line of thinking work? Well, the the, the typical narcissistic, so here, here's something that you need to know about narcissism. First off, we're talking about a spectrum disorder. So it's not like you either are or you're not that, we can dabble in it a little bit up to the point that it becomes a very toxic behavior. So with that being said, the the narcissist does not look for a relationship to find love. They look for a relationship to find fuel, emotional fuel, because they're like a cell phone battery is that if they're not getting constant attention, that they feel like they're going to evaporate and, and die. So what they do is they look for very sensitive souls, uh, broken souls, because only the broken souls will tolerate <laughs> what they put people through. I call them wounded empaths. And and they begin these set of, I call them shenanigans, many people call them abuses, to be able to basically capture their target. And what I mean by that is when you enter a narcissistic relationship, it's no different than being onboarded onto a cult in that there are step one is, oh my gosh, it's called love bombing. And this is when the the narcissist will literally bomb you with love, that they they pedestalize you, the you're they they future fake with you, they they do all these things with the goal of getting the target or the victim to be able to fall in love with them with the goal of keeping that person around to extract fuel. Oh, I see. So it gets to a situation then once you make that step in that direction of satisfaction, then it's never enough for the other person? No, being with an narcissist is like is like trying to fill a glass with a hole in the bottom that no matter how much you put into it, because they, they need a, a, a constant flow of fuel to maintain their ego. I see. I see. Now, I, I thought a lot about this, especially when you consider the kind of world that we live in, uh, where social media seems to have fueled a file, uh, I'd like to say a fire of isolation, where people begin to believe that the world through social media is the way that the world is. Would things like that be possibilities of tools that create this sort of condition or what do you believe does? True narcissism stems from trauma in childhood and so it's normally they came from a narcissistic abusive family 
with neglect and abandonment running strongly in the background. And so out of survival, a person becomes uh, a narcissist. Out of survival and programming, a person becomes a narcissist. Uh, I, I believe that we have yet to see what degrees of narcissism are going to be coming out of social media. We have a whole generation that doesn't feel, you know, our generation, and I'm, I'm 59, our generation, we got our feelings hurt if we didn't get invited to a certain party or if we, you know, didn't make the certain cheerleading squad or sports team or something of that nature. We have a generation of kids who, and, you know, that would happen on occasion. We have a generation of, of, of people who are relying on life from either people or bots to validate their sense of self. And so this need to be able to see yourself, uh, narcissism, they have to see themselves in order to feel visible. So I do feel that we, we have, it will be interesting to see how it unfolds. Yeah, I think so. And it was fascinating as I was beginning to ask you that question. I opened up to your book, The Narctionary, and the first one I've seen was under the letter L, Learned Helplessness. We seem to have a lot of that going on. (laughs) We do. We do. There's, you know, there's this sense of, I I don't know, I kind of think that there's a sense of, of false power. Like people feel that they're so powerful behind the screen of the camera. Um, or a, a smartphone, but learned helplessness is it, it stems from a trauma wound, and it's really when we attempt to feel, we attempt to take power and ownership of our life, uh, and the results end up failing. That and it can stem down to like little things if you're talking about within a relationship. Let's say that there's a conflict within the relationship and one partner who is not a narcissist wants to talk to the other partner who is the narcissist uh, to resolve the issue. Well, as one of the rules of thumb of a narcissism is there shall be no resolve in this relationship because if there's resolve, it means there's peace. If there's peace, it means there's no fuel. So out of survival, they have to keep a constant chaos going in the relationship. And so what happens is that the 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 partner of the narcissist will probably end up in therapy and they'll say, well, just, you know, implement boundaries or speak up. So that person is trying to follow the psychological rules and they go to discuss this issue within the relationship only to have it flipped on its head and word saladed and blame shifting and chaos and a fight over nothing. That what happens to to the person who tried to take initiative and power over their life was, no matter what I do, I'm not able to fix this. So then they, they hit this resign that says I'm powerless to actually fix my problem. And that's not a true statement. What happened is that you are dealing with somebody who's not playing by the normal rules of life. And so, therefore, the rules must change. Yeah, it's interesting as you were describing that. I was thinking of a movie, a uh, Michael Kate movie, Clean and Sober, and there was a couple in this uh, in this movie where he shows up at her doorstep. I think they had sort of a falling out. And you reminded me of this particular scene where he says, you know, I have problems. And then she says, you always have problems. And he says, I know I've always got problems, but without you, I don't make it. Is that something that a narcissist would say in a relationship? 
uh, the narcissist does not admit to ever having problems. The narcissist feels that they are right, and the rest of the world is wrong. I see. Okay. I gotcha. Now, there was another interesting term on that same uh, page there in your uh, narctionary, <laughs> love bombing. Now, what exactly is that? So, love bombing, when you, when you asked the question earlier, how in the world does a person end up uh, in, in a relationship with a narcissist? You know, the, narciss- the narcissistic abuse cycle has three different um, phases in it. Phase one is the the honeymoon phase or something that I call the dream girl and dream boy phase. Phase two is the degradation phase and phase three is the discard phase. In phase one, you know, before before you reach phase two, which is when this person is just chipping away at your self-esteem and your sanity, that prior to that, there's an entire phase where the goal of the narcissist is to get you to fall in love with them. And so they will do whatever it takes to to wow you, to impress you. And so this is called love bombing. And it's when, it you know, a typical sign of a narcissist is they come in hot and they come in fast. And, you know, whenever somebody says to me in this day and age, oh, they just swooped me off my feet, I was like, ooh. That's actually not a good time, a good, a good time, because somebody who really loves you wants to stable you on your feet. A man doesn't <laughs> want to sweep you off. <laughs> a man doesn't, I'm, I'm speaking in, in male, female. A man does not want to, a true man does not want to sweep you off your feet. A true man wants to protect you in life with your feet on the ground. And so it's a totally different angle. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. And I know that typically men, you know, want to, like you said, we want to protect, we want to serve, you know, we want to help. That's what we do. But uh, the fact is we don't want to have to be the security support for everything. I mean, (laughs) it gets kind of crazy. It's funny when you watch, and it's been a while since I have, but when you'd see those dating shows, you know, blind date, things like that. And I remember there was one episode I was watching one late night and, uh, she says, I just want a man who will support me emotionally, financially, physically. I mean, just this long list of what she needed. And I think to myself, would that be a narcissist or is that something different? No, that's kind of a, that, that's a well, that's kind of the Cinderella complex of, of a woman who wants to be, who doesn't want to take ownership of her life. And and people who don't want to take ownership of, of, their, of their life that is a narcissistic characteristic. And it doesn't mean that that person is a narcissist, but it means that that particular mentality is kind of rooted in the the mindset of narcissism. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an interesting term. Go ahead. Sorry. Because one of the things I wanted to say is that we all can have a dabble in narcissism, that we can be having a bad day, um, we can be just off kilter, and we can make some selfish moves. But because, you know, we all have something called healthy narcissism within us, right? So when we do that, that's just being a person who's having a bad day. And the way that it doesn't turn into a problem is that either somebody will come up to you and say, hey, you're kind of being a jerk. And you're like, I know. And there's that self-recognition 
there's the authentic apology and and that's how you know that you're not a narcissist and you just you're just having an off day. A person is deemed a narcissist when it becomes more and more part of their general personality to operate in the characteristics of narcissism. Hmm. Wow. Now, couching was an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, good old couching. Good, you know, um, couching has a, a couple of different um, definitions, but one of the definitions of couching is is somebody who just pulls up into your life and they just start to they they just take a couch in your life and expect you to keep everything going because there's two types of abuses within within a narcissistic relationship. There's a, there's the, the control factor where that person wants to, and it kind of taps into what you were just saying about some women, is that, or well, I don't mean to say it that way, but you know what I mean, um, that, that somebody will, uh, they'll come in and they will take over your life and want to 100% control you. Then there's there's the dynamic where the person will come in and suddenly you're responsible for this whole other adult and they pull back on working and they pull back on their responsibilities. Um, Another thing about couching, like I'll read just the exact definition is, it's an abuse technique where the narcissist will wrap an insult to look like a concern. So this is one of the techniques that it, it literally says like, are you going to wear that? Why, why is there a problem? Well, you know, you sure you want to go there? You sure you want to move that right. person? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Making you feel like you're doing something wrong, but you really don't know what it is. Exactly. Exactly. It's <laughs> a way of saying you're, you're, there's something flawed in you. Hmm. Now, does that lead to broken record syndrome? Oh my goodness! Now, broken record syndrome, and again, I think this this can be something that you can see on both sides of of the uh, the dynamic of narcissism. So, with um, I'll just read the definition. So, the broken record syndrome uh, it's a stress response syndrome that's caused that causes the target of narcissistic abuse to repeat themselves. It arises when the victim of narcissistic abuse is stonewalled by the narcissist and they feel unheard. So what happens is, have you ever met a, a person, and, and I laugh because um, my husband says, I don't know how you do what you do, Tracy, because if somebody came to me... Good morning, good morning, everyone. And came to me and said... Um, Sorry, I heard something and said, you know, I don't know how you tolerate hearing the same issues over and over again. If somebody repeated the same problem three times to me, I would be like, figure it out and come back if you're not going to take my advice. And I said, well, you're dealing with people with with trauma wounds. It's that they feel unheard. And that's that's actually a sign also of the word that you chose earlier, which is learned helplessness that they, they know there's a problem, they want to solve the problem, they know that they're being bullied, they know that 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 this person's acting inappropriate, and no matter what they do, the person continues to do it. So they become like a broken record. 
And what that stems from is they're, they're trying to use the normal rules of love with a person who doesn't play by those normal rules. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of not playing by normal rules, I like this one. Cognitive empathy. <laughs> this is a tricky one here, it looks like. The cognitive empathy. All right, let's jump over there. So cognitive empathy, an abuse technique where the narcissist uses fake empathy to discover the weaknesses or vulnerabilities of their of their target. So one of the things that I do that I mentioned really happens in the love bombing stage is that when you're with a true narcissist, they it's also called fake empathy. And what fake empathy is, it's a conscious choice to basically scan and vet and interview a potential target to see if this person is somebody that the narcissist can onboard and become a fuel source. Uh -huh. So they ask you, mm -hmm, they ask you very vulnerable questions. And in order to get you to open up more and more and more, they will act like they care. Another sign of cognitive empathy is if a narcissist needs something, like I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example of a client. There was a narcissist, and he never wanted children. In fact, children made him irritated. And his boss, who he wanted to be on good sides with, had children. And he and his partner were at a, a company event and the husband sat down and was asking all these questions about the children's activities and their school, and and then the kids would come by, and there was this playfulness with them. And the, the partner of the narcissist was like, this is a person who denied me of children. They denied me of children. What What is she doing? And I said, that's fake empathy. That's cognitive empathy, that he is consciously making the choice to pretend like so that the boss will then trust in him and and he's getting his needs met. Uh, wow, there's a lot of crazy psychological manipulation going on here. You kind of wonder how an individual like that gets out of bed and even lives in the world, let alone deals with themselves. Is that why they have to bring on a partner? They have to bring on a partner because there's – there is a side of the narcissist that when you remove that fake facade, that they feel invisible. Uh, so they need people in situations around them to constantly remind them that they are visible. Now, here's a, a term that's right next to cognitive empathy, which uh, grabbed me right away, and that was compassion fatigue. I would imagine being <laughs> on the receiving end, Boy, you would just about drain out of everything. And the fact that you were in a relationship like this for five years, you kind of wonder, how did you physically, not you know, much less mentally endure this before you finally said, you know, I know this can't be me that's off kilter here, and then what you decided to do about it? So the um, compassion fatigue is exactly what it sounds like. And uh, I'll just take you back to a big turning point for me. When I finally was able to start to get help, <clears throat> by the time I walked into a therapy office and the therapist says what therapists do is, why are you here? 
And the only thing I could tell the therapist was because I feel invisible and that my brain is made of mush. And during that season of my life, I had so many physical aches and pains. I had fatigue. I had brain fog. I had like all these things. And of course, you know, I'm I'm making every excuse because anytime I would speak up about something that was wrong, it would be flipped on its head. And so I, it would never have results. So it was just this chronic, this chronic uh, abuse that I was living through. And, and that's literally how I felt is, is I just, I, I was exhausted. And that's, uh, that is what, what um, compassion fatigue does is that it's literally a collapse zone of the narcissist where physical we call it nervous breakdown now, <laughs> or we used to call it nervous breakdown, is the the ongoing mental torture causes a person to collapse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just such a, a fascinating journey, and, I, and I'm kind of curious, and I'm sure maybe the listeners are as well, is would you feel that you grew up in a relatively healthy family or had a pretty healthy childhood that somehow, you know, when you think of something like this, I guess to the outside observer, they would think, well, God, I could have caught this in a heartbeat, but I don't think it's quite as easy or quite as linear as it might seem to the outside observer. No, it depends a lot on your our family of origin and what we're taught is normal, healthy behavior and what is not. If you can end up in an adult life with a narcissist if you were raised with a narcissist, such as I was. And and I just have to say that this person, um, I love this person deeply and have the absolute best possible relationship that you can with somebody who is love deficient, but that's taken tons of work, personal work. But at any rate, that that was with narcissism for my example was that i came from a uh, a childhood environment where it was normalized that i thought that you know one day a person will love you and then the next they're angry at you over nothing and you know so to me this behavior was normalized to me now you can also come from any type of an environment where there was trauma, and it could be an alcoholic parent, it could have been a parent who was constantly depressed, um, a workaholic parent, just where those elements of trauma, of abandonment trauma can take place. And and so you have that, those, that, wrong pro, that wrong programming. And because narcissists, especially as it moves on up the scale. And what I mean by that is, as I said earlier, it's a spectrum disorder, and we have healthy narcissism, and then as it moves up from there, it's narcissistic characteristics. And then as it moves up from there, and those are very problematic, uh, difficult people, and as it moves on up the scale, then goes into narcissistic personality disorder. Those are very problematic people. And then as it goes on up the scale, it goes into antisocial personality disorder, formerly known as sociopaths and psychopaths. And so, and those are really uh, dangerous people that we just need to stay away from. So as, as you are exposed to this type of personality, um, it will depend on, on what uh, normal 
to you and what you will end up tolerating as you progress in life. Now, as I'm looking through this, it's kind of I kind of want to read this part of the book uh, because I like how you actually have the terms in there. And uh, it made me start thinking at first as I was picking this up, well, how do people actually use this book? And then I finally, a light goes on that, well, let's just say that, that, that when you're in a narcissistic relationship, that you're actually at war. Now, the question is, are you at war with that person outside of you or is it a war within yourself? And so when it comes to how to use the dictionary, I think why this can be effective of what you've created here is that, it gives people the opportunity to name and see the enemy and at least its habits, its ways of doing things. Is that uh, another big reason why Narctionary was actually created? Yeah, I'll tell you how the story of Narctionary came about. So I've been in the recovery world, as I said, for 30 years now. I, I run an abuse recovery program, a narcissistic abuse recovery program. It's called Reclaiming Me. And it takes place twice a week and in classrooms um, across the world. And um, we haven't missed a class in, in 30 years. So we're, we're like, this is our heart and our soul. So the reason that Narctionary came about is it was probably about nine months ago. And a girlfriend of mine who was married to a very powerful man, um, I knew he was a narcissist because, you know, I just... I have a radar about that, but married for 12 years and she calls me one day and she's devastated because he came home and basically said, you know what, done, finished over, move on, get out. And she was, and she said, I, I didn't even see this coming, you know, out of the blue. He just, we were at a conference. The conference was great. He came home and he said, that's it. You're, you're, you're getting divorced. And I said to her, ah, I said, well, that's a, I said, you got the discard. She goes, what's the discard? And I said, the discard is phase three of the narcissistic cycle of abuse where the narcissist will one day uh, be finished with fuel sourcing off of you and throw you out like trash. And she goes, oh, my God, that's exactly what happened. And she said, and, you know, moving up, moving up to this point, she's, she's like, I mean, everything was so amazing in the beginning. And then one day it was like, no matter what I did, I could never – make him happy again. And I said, well, that's because you went from phase one of the love bombing phase to phase two of the degradation phase. And they, they they got bored of your accolades, so they had to get reaction in different ways, which is to make you insecure and see you cry. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then she says, and the worst thing is that any time I tried to solve an argument, that I would try to talk to him, and it, I would be so jumbled up by the time it was over, we would be fighting over nothing. And I said, well, yes, you are word saladed. And she says, what's a word salad? And I said, a word salad is when the narcissist takes a whole bunch of words and throws them in a conversation just to simply confuse you so that nothing ever gets resolved. And she said to me, oh, Tracy, you should, you should take all these terms and put them in one place so we newbies can just pick up this manual and do a quick read and understand what we're dealing with. And so I said, well, I can do that because since the beginning of my recovery, I had kept this list, this list just for myself because there were so many new terms and new vocabulary uh, exclusive to this world. 
that in order for me to get well and protect myself, I needed to give the ghost a name. Right. And that's why I said it's easier when you're in something that you can observe, that you can see, and that you can come to know, for lack of a better word, what the enemy is, you know, what the battle is all about. And that's where I come to this one term here, and I think it's a fascinating one to talk about here, is that a lot of times, and I like that you use word salad of people listening now doesn't know what that is, watch our current press secretary for the President of the United States or our Vice President. They use a lot of word salads when they uh, talk about things, but... You know, it's quite funny to, that this next term here, I really like this because it gives you something deeper to kind of consider, especially for the listeners out there, that when we're in relationships, we want to connect, we want to have intimacy, and we want to have understanding, compassion, all these things that we help nurture each other to be great versions of ourselves. That isn't to say that when you're in a relationship, that's what you, you're expected to do, but that as each of you grow and you will change, that you have those elements in the relationship that help you through sort of the unknown baggage that you might have had in your expectations of what a relationship really is. I mean, look at all the fantasy symbols we have out there, like Cinderella syndrome, for instance, as you mentioned earlier, Sleeping Beauty, there's the person that needs to be rescued, that sort of a thing, versus two people who come together uh, you know, maybe there's some crazy skeletons here and there, but you work through them together and you grow and you realize that you both get something out of that growth experience. But it, this one here might kind of tangle up a mind for a minute because it might suggest that in a relationship that you have a level of detachment. And when I say that, I say that meaning, you know, that, Detachment can be a very healthy thing. That isn't to say that you're disinterested or you don't care. But this term here, observe, don't absorb the system. Let's talk about that one. So that is a form of, of attachment or of detachment. And detachment is, is really important in order. Okay. So when you're with a narcissist, they usurp uh your life they just come in and they and they take over and you just lose yourself to their dynamics and one of their techniques one of their shenanigans is really to motivate by guilt right uh, normally there, there's two types of personalities that can keep a, a narcissistic relationship standing and that is a narcissist with a narcissist they just fuel source off of how wonderful, because a narcissist doesn't see another person as an individual. They see it as an extension of themselves. So when they're with somebody who's hot and, and successful, they will, if they meet them in that stage, they don't want somebody underneath them to ever become that uh, successful. But when they meet somebody who is hot and successful and they end up getting together and narcissism is on both sides of the equation, that that is a sustainable narcissistic relationship. The other one is a narcissist with a self-deprecate, what I call more of a wounded empath, a real feeler. Most of the times it could be women because by nature, we women will take bullets for other people. We're, we're great compassionists. We want everyone, you know, what, what's the number one cause of depression in women is a disruption in their personal relationships. So 
all these things that are normal tangled together makes, and you add trauma wounds on top of that, makes this wounded empath a walking. So part of the recovery journey, part of the ways that they keep us in, in the relationship is to motivate by guilt, to make us feel responsible to fix things. To, if you have somebody that goes after the kids, that you'll jump in there and you'll be like, no, and you'll do whatever it takes to try to protect everyone around the narcissist's fire. Well, the observe, don't absorb is a recovery technique, and I'll just read it from the book. It says, a recovery technique that when the narcissist tries to get you in an emotional wrestling match, you consciously choose to detach or step back from the abuse and observe their manipulative techniques for what they are, but you don't own them and you don't engage with them. Engaging is giving the narcissist fuel. And this is why, going back to what you just said, and thank you for saying that, this book is so important because I remember the day that because I had the word, word salading in my vocabulary and my emotional knowledge, that when the narcissist began to word salad me, I was able to say, hey, this is word salad. We're not going anywhere with this conversation, so let's just stop it. And I was able to observe very clearly, this is what they're doing, but I separated myself from it. I no longer allowed myself to be lured into the chaos. It's amazing how fast that can happen. And it's funny because uh, I say if there's a moment that you find yourself in a debate or an argument with somebody, the first thing you need to observe is, is there emotion in it? Because if there is, you probably won't win, not that that's the goal. But an example of that, and it may seem like it's kind of off the beaten path, but sometimes I wonder if this person wouldn't happen to be a narcissist themselves. But I noticed that they had a newspaper sitting on the table where they were dining. And I was just curious what they were reading about. And somehow this turned into that Roe versus Wade being overturned, right? And so I just Mm. simply said, well, that really is all about the federal Supreme Court saying, no, we should leave this to the states. It wasn't taking away really anything, or maybe it could. I don't know. She says, no, it isn't. And I... It took me a couple of minutes because I actually got hook, lined, and sinkered right into an argument that was completely emotional with no logic or reason or even good information. And she says, no, what it was is they took away our constitutional right to be able to perform, you know, an abortion, I guess. And I'm like, no, that's not what that was at all. But I got caught up in the argument. It became heated. And even the friend that was sitting there says, maybe this is a discussion you two shouldn't be having. I looked right at her and I said, you know, you're actually right. <laughs> and I recognized, wait a minute, I got caught up into this. And I guess the point of the story would be to say, narcissists, do they tend to make a lot of the conversations and arguments emotional so that they keep you trapped in yeah. that? Yeah, everything so, has to be emotion because emotion is is fuel. For them, and they narcissists love to argue. The the one thing is that you know uh, empaths don't like to argue. They'd rather have a peaceful conversation and reach resolve. It's not about having a quote unquote difficult conversation, but you know the happiness in life is that people can believe whatever they want to believe. And one of the things I learned along the lines of recovery is that if somebody wants to believe that the moon is made of cheese, let them. 
Because the people who are truly convicted and believe in something, we're not going to yell at another person and say, the moon is not made of cheese. We know the moon's not. <laughs> don't need to lose our peace. And so, you know, my, my father-in-law, God, God rest his soul, he used to always say, you want to believe the moon is made of cheese? My response is going to be, what type of cheese, darling? And exactly. not to engage in that person. Yeah, because we know our truth. And it's really important mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a narcissistic personality, somebody who wants to just create war over nothing, drama over nothing, that you just have to settle down and say, okay, if that's, that's how you see things. But just because they say it doesn't make it true. That's one of my mantras that I teach the people in my program. Just because they say it doesn't make it true. Yep. <laughs> in fact, you reminded me of a funny little story when uh, my wife and I were do, uh, at a trade event uh, when we were promoting our radio show years back. Uh, so I'm talking with somebody at the table, but behind me I can hear her talking with another gentleman. And I could tell by the pitch and the energy of the conversation, it was kind of heated, you know, for one reason or the other. So I got finished, and as I turned around, she simply says, "Uh, Daniel, uh, this gentleman here doesn't believe that you can cure diabetes. Now, it was funny as she was telling me that the guy standing there, and you can tell he's armed for confrontation just by his body language, Uh right? Uh I just smiled and said, well, that's fine. And then you just see him deflate like he was ready for a battle. And I don't think he expected me to say, well, that's fine. If you don't believe that can't happen, that's fine with me. Uh, you're the one that lives with that and decision. You, I was. <laughs> if you know? believe it can't happen, then it's not going to happen for you. I believe it can happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like this term here, shape shifting, which kind of really seems to be what we're talking about here. Mm. Shape shifting is a survival technique that the uh, target or the victim of narcissists uh, implements to keep peace. It stems from a lack of self-authenticity and fear of rejection. So what will happen is that, for example, go back to the conversation that you were having with, with that lady, and here an opposite opinion comes up. And rather than diplomatically hold on to your position and give that person their space to have theirs, you would abandon your position just to make that other person feel comfortable and to stop attacking. It's called shape-shifting. You shape yourself into the emotional match for the people who are causing problems. Mm-hmm. Who threaten yeah. to abandon you or reject you should you not agree with them. Yeah. You know, it was funny, too, back to that particular argument as as we went on, and I realized the situation that I found myself hook-lined and sinkered into, it became easier. I just remember mentally I went calm, and I said, just continue this if you feel like it, just with logic. Just ask questions. That's the best thing I can think of to do, at least in the moment. And... Yeah, you know, and that's uh, a healthy discussion. The, yeah, and that's exactly all I wanted, but I didn't even really want to talk about it. She brought it up in the first place, and I just simply said, all that was is this, which was a fact. And she just went ballistic on me, and I thought to myself, who in this world 
wants to take a position, you know, I get the it's my body, my right, because I watched a lot of women really flip out over this whole thing, and I thought, okay, I kind of understand the idea, well, I get to make that choice, but is it really that important? And so maybe it was, but in this particular case here with this conversation is that she says, well, you know, here I am, I'm an illegal immigrant, and I find myself pregnant, and I can't make that decision to have an abortion if I don't want to have the baby because it might be hardship. And I thought to myself, well, what are you doing in our country illegally in the first place? See, I just exactly. started saying, okay, well, if that's your scenario. Here's the question. What about this? And, and you know, what woman who grew up, for the most part, thinking that's a goal I want to have is to not have a baby and have that choice? And I'm thinking... Uh, something's kind of slipped off here in the conversation, you know, because I think of extreme cases and, and I agree. My, my attitude is it's your choice, you know, what you want to do, you know, but, uh, it, it kind of really gets crazy. And, and it's funny how as we're having this conversation today about narcissism, I keep turning the pages of the, uh, this narctionary and finding that, well, here's, here's one right here, moving the start line. <laughs> like, okay, well, I get that. Let's go ahead down the road here and so i feel like i'm intuitively or maybe god's working through me as i'm turning the pages and talking with you and being able to open up what this narctionary actually has in it yeah the moving the start line um and the, the polar opposite of that one is is moving the finish line so uh this is a technique that the narcissist uses that can really keep a person stuck inside the relationship which is their goal and so moving the start line means that the narcissist will do something to traumatize you, to to throw disruption and chaos into the relationship. And rather than own it and make amends for it and come up with a new plan that that pain won't happen again, they instead just move the start line. Okay, okay, never mind what happened. Let's just start over. No, okay, just okay, just never mind. Start over. But there's never accountability, and so they're constantly. It's like a, you see it a lot with, with uh, p- people who suffer from addictions. Okay, it was just one drink, let's start over. Okay, it was just one time I abused you, let's start over. And there's no accountability for change. On the opposite end of that, there's moving the finish line. And moving the finish line is when you have done something to hurt the narcissist, often called a narcissistic injury, no matter what you do, it will never be enough to get back into their graces. Even if you stay within the relationship, they'll still hold that against you. And there's just, you could just never cross the finish line of, of completion of making the wrong right. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask Dr. Tracy, how do you know when it's time? First of all, A, you identify that you're in the, in a relationship like this, which I guess to, observers who haven't had this experience would find, well, that seems pretty easy to me. You know, you're just feeding somebody else's energy uh, by draining yours. It seems like feeding the fuel as, you know, and, but when do you know, and then when do you say it's enough and you walk away? I mean, for you, it took five years. It seemed like, I mean, that's a long time, but I'm sure well, that you have five worked. Years, but it took, yeah, that time. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, I, I'm sure you've probably come across people that were in relationships like that longer, and I couldn't even imagine the devastation of a situation like that. Well, here's here's the challenge is 
I, I always describe myself because I came from a family where this type of behavior was normalized for me. That when I got into my adult life and I would be in relationships and I had a lot of narcissists around me for many, many, many years because I thought this was human behavior. And I remember on several occasions that, you know, people would be saying and doing things to me. And the the word picture that I get is it was as though I was going through life with my hand on the electric burner stove. And people would walk by, they would gasp, oh, my God, doesn't that hurt? And I would say, it does. And they would say, don't you want to remove your hand? And my response would be, can I? This is the ah. typical mindset of somebody in trauma, is that depending on how long you have been exposed to this behavior, you've learned helplessness. Do I have the power mm. to stop this pain? Do I have the power to take care of myself? Then you add the added element on top of it that a narcissist will break you down so that you are afraid to be in the world by yourself. And you have somebody who, who for many reasons, cannot leave the, the relationship because they don't yet have the awareness. So I find that people who go through my program they they come to the program. Of course, everybody is, is like a skinned rabbit when they come in. They're just so raw and they're confused and everything is blurry. Nothing has a name, just pain. And um, and as they begin to, to recover and they begin to uh, take back their life and take back their soul and, you know, we do the inner, the external work, we do the inner work, et cetera, et cetera. What happens is that it will, it will, uh, and in the program, I always say, it is none of our business if you want to leave or stay. It is none of our business. This is a personal decision. If you choose to leave, you need to have a strategy because the narcissist can be very, very mean if they feel that you have rejected them. If you so happen to choose to stay, Inevitably, I have to ask that person, so here you are in a relationship. You've learned to hold on to yourself. You know that this person is going to have episodes for the rest of their life. They might go benign for a week or two, but something's going to happen, and they're going to react in the way that they react unless they get help. Is this really the type of love that you want? Is it really the fulfilling type of love? You know, when we are with love and in relationships, we are to live unguarded. Our arms are to be open. Our chest is to be open. Our eyes can be closed and we can be breathing in because we know we're not going to get sucker punched. But you can't live that way mm. in a narcissistic relationship. You have to live on constant guard to protect yourself. And at the end of the day, I got help because I was in such emotional and psychological and physical pain. And I, I was able to eventually leave that relationship because I was getting help and I was beginning to understand the toxicity that I was living in. I had to go redefine my sense of normal and create a normal that is based on much healthier standards. And then I had that question myself is, okay, I can protect myself. But do I really want to live with somebody who who every day I'm wondering who's coming to the door? Do I really want mm -hmm. to 
you know, reach things where I can't say, I don't like that. I didn't agree with that. And to be my own individual person without that person threatening to harm me or, or abandon me, that's not love. And so it's kind of a, it's a step-by-step process that, that the victim goes through. I remember we did a segment some time ago on that very thing about love, and I think it was if it's love, it doesn't hurt or shouldn't hurt or something like that. And I thought that's true because love heals. So how does that hurt? And when you think of, uh, for instance, you or people who have been in relationships like you have, especially for long periods of time, I guess the big question also for people listening out there would be, what did that liberation feel like? And what did the world become for you when you got to that precipice and that change occurred? <laughs> so uh, one of the many things that I've done is I, I, I'm also a songwriter. And I released a song last year, and it's called Personal Independence Day. And this this is exactly what my life felt like. May 16th is my personal independence day, and it was the day that I said, I'm going to be free from this. I'm going to I'm going to step into my body. I'm going to become 100% who I am. I'm going to release all these tethers of other people, and it's like. I could breathe. I life became such an amazing, beautiful place. People became amazing again because you know when you're uh, with with narcissists, you, you begin to doubt people and fear people and things of that nature. And life just became colorful again. It stopped being black and white. It stopped being scary. Of course, you you will always have the contrast in your life. This is life. This is the journey. You know, it's not going to be just one color of pink the whole time, but it's the contrast in life that makes life that, that make paintings beautiful, right? And so that's how we're supposed to handle the contrast. And I was just saying yesterday that one of the biggest problems that one of the biggest tools we don't get in life is that all of us will go through trial. But do you know how we get through trial? It's with the understanding <laughs> that. It's to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's when we find ourselves in, in these situations that there is no end in sight that we begin to lose our sanity and our, our mental health and our physical health. If somebody were to say, listen, your child is in crisis, or you're in crisis, or somebody you love is in crisis, and you have to jump into this ice water, how long do I have to swim for? You have to swim for two minutes to the other side, underwater, no breathing. You'd be like, two minutes? Yeah. Okay. You would study everything. You would get in that, in that awful situation, and you would swim like mad in passion, and you would get to the other side, and you would come up. And the reason that, that no matter how bad it got underneath that cold ice water, you knew that there was an end in sight. And you just have to get to the end and the crisis will be over, right? Well, that's what happens in mm-hmm. toxic relationships is that there's no end in sight. And this is when we start drawing that, that line in the fairness of life to say, like, everyone goes through trials and tribulations. This is life. But when we surround ourselves with people who there is no end in sight, this is when we're entering into toxicity. 
And two, Dr. Tracy, what I find fascinating, especially over the many years of doing this show, is uh, as we've talked with natural healers, spiritual uh, shamans, uh, the like, run the gamut, is we have been given or blessed with a human mind, body, and spirit. It's all interconnected. And as we talk here today about, for instance, the uh, experience that you had in this toxic relationship, this narcissistic relationship, you describe things such as feeling physical pain. And you think to yourself, well, if you love or you're in love, what you don't feel is physical pain. And I'm sure in the beginning, that's probably exactly what it was like. It was just, oh, I'm walking on top of the world. I just got I want to do everything for everybody. You just feel so empowered. But then as it begins to break down, uh, and you find yourself in a situation now, it's like, why am I feeling sad this way all the time? Do I get to this point that I don't even want to get out of bed in the morning or you're feeling aches and pains that are constant that never go away that you might say that the body is like kind of this really unique biological psychic antenna that's telling you, Hey, how much more do I have to go through before you get the fact that this situation you're in is not healthy. <laughs> I mean, you're getting all the triggers and alarms, and it's amazing what we can get used to, you know, not just in that situation, but you look at even work situations that you may be in. I hate my job. You got the Monday morning blues, you know, thank God it's Friday. Maybe it's time you realign yourself with something else. That's certainly what your body is telling you. What would you say to something like that? Well, I, I have two thoughts on that. The first one is that our body talks to us. And if, if your bo- our bodies are meant to be well, and our bodies are these amazing um, machines, for lack of better words, magic machines, that they are like an airplane is designed to fly. Our body is designed to heal itself. When our body gets an illness, it wants to heal itself. It's only when things go haywire that it's not able to. Now, um, Our Mind is a really good book. Um, It's called The Biology of Belief. It's an amazing book. And this is uh, the entire explanation how our thoughts create our body. And so I believe that what's going on in our mind and our emotional system, if we ignore it, our body will say, like, for example, um, I... Oh my gosh, I have like, I'm so dizzy, I'm so dizzy, I'm so dizzy. I was working with a client a few weeks ago. They kept complaining of dizziness. They wanted to blame it on 10,000 things. And I said, you are dizzy because you're not looking at the reality of your life. And you feel that life mm-hmm. is spinning out of control. You, you feel like life is spinning out of control. So no wonder you would break up or wake up in the morning and, and feel dizzy. Life is spinning out of control. I had a client one time that I worked with that her shoulder kept popping out of, it would just dislocate. And I, and she, the doctors couldn't figure out why it would it continue to happen. Well, in, in the discovery of, of wellness, she would speak into her life almost every day. I feel like I'm falling apart at the seams. I feel like I'm falling apart at the seams. And look at that. Well, you know what? The only reason that the arm didn't fall off is because there's skin that's keeping it there, skin and muscle. But the fact that the body 
speaks to us so much. And I'm one who, you know, I where I am in my stage of recovery now is that I listen to my body. That if, if I understand my body is meant to be well. And if my body isn't well, the first thing I look at is Like, for example, I've had a sore lower back for two days. Well, I started a new exercise program, and I'm exercising muscles that haven't been used. So I'm not worried about my 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 lower back. Now, for years, I used to get these awful stabbing back pains. And that was uh, induced stress and induced thoughts. That there was no reason why out of the blue my body should just go into these extreme um pain cycles, digestive cycles, chronic headaches, blurry vision, neck pain, pelvic issues. I mean, these are all connected to the thoughts that go inside of us. The second thing that I wanted to touch on based on this question is I really believe we only have one purpose in life, and that is the purpose to live in joy, to spend this existence with the and joy is something that makes you say, I love this. I love this. I love this person. I want to spend my life with this. I love this craft. I want to do this for a living. I love this place. You're meant to live there. So this joy, it's not it's different than happiness, but this internal joy that allows us just to be in love with life is our guiding light. It's why we're here is to find that joy because when we operate in our joy, we are operating at the highest definition of who we are, who the great creator made us to be. And when we show up that way, the people who authentically love us will love that person, not a less than version. And it is only then that we're operating at the highest definition of ourselves that we can truly love another person, that that person's not getting the B version of me, that person's getting the A version of me. And I believe that that's our purpose, is to find that joy. You know, I agree uh, with that 100% because I think, uh, as I was talking about earlier, uh, people who are in a relationship with each other, they should want to grow to see not only the best versions of themselves, but also the best versions of the people that they are with. And that takes work. And like I said, you know, there's sort of that – Baggage, and I think we all really have it to a degree because of how we've seen relationships growing up as children. You know, I came from a, a divorced family, so I know what that's like, but you kind of move forward with that and say, how can I have what I believe I want? And at the same time, that doesn't mean that you're in a situation you're taking from someone to build you to become better, that you're actually reciprocating that energy. And it's a very exciting thing, especially when you talk with couples who have been together for a long time and they seem really happy. Like, well, you guys are inseparable, like super best friends, you know, what's the secret. <laughs> and the secret I think is simply that they pursue joy. That doesn't mean, I mean, you're supporting the other person, but at the same time, you're also standing on your own and the other person's supporting you, but they're standing on their own. You may not have the same goals in life for the most part, but the goal is, can we be happy together pursuing whatever those goals are it's a pretty exciting thing. You know, it's kind of like that scene from the movie Goodwill Hunting when he's talking with Will and he says, uh, so you're not with this girl anymore. What happened? Well, you know, she was just perfect. I don't think I should go out on another date. And he says, well, maybe you're not perfect and you don't want to ruin that. 
And he didn't think about it that way before. He says, the question is whether or not are you two perfect for each other? And that's a really unique burning question to ask anybody in a relationship, you know, is it true? No matter how imperfect we are as individuals, because that initial stage, of course, of a relationship is the honeymoon where we're just perfect. Our peacock feathers are colorful. We're, we're, but eventually those things are going to come up as you're around each other a lot. And the question is, can you move through that and grow and say, well, you know, this is a little quirk. I really get a kick out of you about you start discovering these new things that make that person so unique in your life as much as that you become unique in theirs. And you can see what a contrast that is. And I'm sure you're in a relationship now where you go, you know, I, I love that that's the way the world is. It's about adapting and discovering what joy really is. It, it is, you know, I, I've been married many, many years to my husband and we went through a really bad funk um, years ago to the point that we had separated. And uh, when we got back together, we had some of the best conversations and we made, we, we had like, um, we, one of the, I'll give you an example. So one of the things that when we got back together and it's, one of the reasons why our relationship is so successful now is that we made a clear understanding to each other. I don't, I belong to only myself. I belong to only myself. You belong to only yourself. And you are here on this earth for your grand journey. And you will not not become anything less than what you want to experience in life. And I will not become anything less than I want to experience in life. And let's test the system to see if we can love each other through all this growth. And it kind of became like an exciting challenge for us. And... What has stemmed from that is he for me and me for him. We are uh, each other's go-to person when we wake up in the morning and say, what do you want out of life? And that fear of saying, gosh, I think I have a new dream. I think I want to experience this. I think I, I want to experience that. And it's so Amazing to be able to go to your partner in life and share the new definition of you that's unfolding and have that person go, cool, how can I help you? How can I support you? What do you need from me in this journey? And it's been such a pleasure to watch him evolve and grow and to watch myself evolve and grow. And the the most interesting thing about it is there are areas where we have really grown and opposite positions, which so many times that can be a threat in a relationship. Oh, we don't do this anymore. And like one of the examples is I love to travel and he loves to be, he loves to travel, but to go to somewhere and sit in the same place for the longest time. Right. And I, I want to get out and see things and experience things. And so now in our relationship that I, like I told him, I'm like, I want to go to Iceland and I want to see the, the Nordic light. And in the past, I wouldn't have been so free to say, I want to do this. Like, my soul's calling me to do this. And and rather than saying, well, you know, I'll bet, you know, he'll say, yeah, I'm not in, but knock yourself out. <laughs> and that makes me love him even more, you know, because I can share 
my dreams and my hopes with somebody who's in support of that and vice versa. Yeah, it's a wonderful situation to be in a healthy relationship where you're growing, you know, especially when you grow in ways you couldn't even. (laughs) Now, what we have here in front of us, uh, we have the last minute or two here. uh, You have your website, which is drtracy.tv. And I noticed there's a Meet 16. What's that all about? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> so 16, along my, I, I run the Feminine, Feminine Boss Academy and Society, and I teach women how to become the boss of their be and their business with feminine energy. And it's all rooted in this journey to self-love. And one of the things about operating in self-love is self-acceptance. And it's breaking up with perfectionism. It's learning that mistakes are a part of life. And it's learning to have this acceptance of, of oneself so that we can begin to navigate that self to our, our desired destiny. Well, along my journey, um, because of my trauma, I had some a very critical voice inside of me, a very self-sabotaging voice or messaging inside of me. And one day in my in my prayer and meditation time, I was doing what many of us do. It was like, just rid me of this. Just rid me of this. You know, you remove it, make it go away. And um, and the the download that came back to me was literally, her name is sixteen. And I'm like, what? What does this mean? And so to unfold the whole story, long story short, is I share it like this. Inside of me, inside of each and every one of us, there's about 17 different me, all the different personalities Mm -hmm. that that we have because we're like a diamond. There are many sides of us. We all know each other. We all get along fabulously except 16. And 16 is that one personality because of trauma in my life that can come along and sabotage me from the inside out that I could wake up in the morning and no matter, you know, I walk up to the mirror and the very first thing she says to me is, oh, my God, could you be more fat today? <laughs> what? Uh-huh. And so because I didn't have that barrier, I thought those thoughts were mine and I didn't understand they were my trauma thoughts or my fear thoughts, right. I would o- own that. So on that day, I learned to give that critical voice a name. Her name is 16. And so when she speaks, I'll be like, okay, girl, settle down a little bit. That's just the fear. That's just the trauma speaking. And you know what? You are a thread in the fabric of my life, but you are not my life. That there are 17 seats at the table, and you get one seat. I'm not going to erase you because you are part of my history. But you get one voice. You don't get 17 voices. And so later in my prayer and meditation time, I, I went back to Florence, and I'm like, why did you give her the name 16? And the message that came back to me was, because 6 plus 1 is 7, and 7 is a perfect number. And even that flawed uh-huh. side of you, that wounded side of you, is perfect in its own way. So that's who 16 is. He's that side of my wounded personality that I've made peace with. It's kind of funny because with that story you just shared about 16, as I uh, love Steely Dan. And he had, they have a song, Hey 19. Kind of takes on a whole new meaning of how I listen to it now. 
for being that divine soul out there in the world that's going to help many people, as you probably have over 30 years, to realize life is a joy, that you should be saying yes to the unfolding of the mystery of life with all the beautiful tools that you were given, you know, with that soul to be able to share that with the world and also to enjoy the fuel that you get from doing such things. People will discover a lot at your website, drtracy.tv. You've also authored three other books. One of them I got a kick out of is Don't Touch My Tiara. I like that about how your <laughs> dreams should become negotiable. I agree with that, you know, 100%. Uh, now, is there anything you'd like to leave with our listeners in parting today? Oh, my goodness. Well, here's the whole thing is that uh, remember that this journey of our lives is supposed to it's supposed to be a glorious journey. And if you're in a place where love is hurting or life is hurting, it, it, the only thing that you're doing wrong is, is you haven't gotten the memos from normal land that on how to do love and life properly in a way that it feels good and it adds hope that there is help out there. Um, if you visit our website, you can be a guest in our class. Come check us out. It's wonderful. It's healing. It's private. It's, it's vulnerable. It's powerful. Uh, the first time you come, you can be our guest. And after that, the program is only $10 a class because it is our heart and passion to walk people through the journey of recovery and to reboot a woman's heart, soul, and mind and emotions so that they become that divine donation to the world. Fantastic. Love the work. Dr. Tracy, thank you for joining us here on the Beyond 50 radio program. Thank you very much. You guys have a great day. Keep up the good work because the work is good. Will do. Thank you so much. We want to thank you, the listeners out there, for tuning in. You can discover more at beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and stay up to date with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50, as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. Have a great day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.